Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are a speaking God. You are a God who communicates to your people through your word. Thank you for that word incarnate, for Jesus, his life and his teaching, his death and his resurrection. And as we come now to consider these parables that he taught, speak to us again, we pray. May the power of the Lord move in this place for his sake. Amen. Uh, there's something about us, I think, especially people from this part of the world, it's our sense of humor, that we like seeing people being taken down a peg or two, don't we? You know, maybe you're, you're in a restaurant and the waiter or the waitress comes along to clear the table and you think, that's ambitious. You know, they go and take too many plates. You think, surely they must be finished now and they left another one. And then they go away and you hear the crash. What does everybody in the restaurant do? You! <laughs> we're delighted when we hear that smash, dear help them. Or maybe something that we watch on the TV, maybe on, on You've Been Framed, you know, you see somebody trying to do something and you can see it coming. They're trying to do something, trying to show off and they get what they deserve. They end up in the soup. Maybe you're not as cruel as me as laughing at other people's misfortune, but we all do like it, I think, when somebody who's just a bit too confident, a bit too arrogant, gets what they deserve. Maybe it's the, the pretty boy footballer, you know, not a hair out of place. He shows off. He always does one too many step overs. And then he gets the ball taken from him in a real crunching tackle. There's something really satisfying about that. Maybe the person who comes along to, to your work uh, and you try to give them instructions. Or you try to say, look, you need to watch out for this. You give them a safety warning and they don't really listen. They say, oh, well, I'll be all right. And then they get to that part of the task that uneven bit of the floor, and they fall over. I warned you, I warned you. Or ladies, maybe you're, you're talking about something and a man thinks that he knows better. You know, he, th he mansplains it to you. And then you show him up and you prove that you know more about the subject than he does. And he really doesn't know what he's talking about. It's very satisfying, isn't it? When someone is a bit too clever and they get what they deserve. And that's exactly what happens just before Jesus tells these two parables this morning. It's exactly what's going on. There's somebody who thinks much too highly of themselves and they get brought down a peg or two by Jesus. Let's jump in to Luke 13 together. Verse 10, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. So Jesus is there. Um, it wouldn't have been uncommon for the rabbis to be up at the front in the synagogue having their turn, teaching. It's a Sabbath day. And this woman's pain is, is hard to overstate. She's been disabled. We don't know exactly how. She's bent over and she's been that way for 18 long years. Then when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you're set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Jesus calls her up to the front of church. He, he, he doesn't do this in private. It's not behind the scenes. And there's this amazing healing. We don't even really have time to think about that this morning. But immediately she straightens up and her first instinct is to praise God. It's a wonderful miracle. Everyone's happy, aren't they? No, the synagogue leaders don't respond well. Verse 14, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, 
there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. And I think if you can imagine being one of the people in the synagogue that day, you probably would have been thinking, well, yeah, fair enough. You know, this has been a wonderful healing and all that. I don't really like the synagogue ruler, but he is right. There are seven days in a week, you know, this Jesus guy, maybe, maybe he's not all he's been talked up to be. But then Jesus gives this wonderful response. You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? And if you're sitting there, you're thinking, well, yes, I'm not going to let my animal waste away or die um, in the hot day, especially in the Middle East in the heat of summer. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day? from what bound her? Would you really treat this woman worse than you would treat one of your animals? Would you really give your donkey a drink on a hot day, but leave this woman, a fellow Israelite, a fellow citizen, to suffer? Of course you wouldn't. Then, when he had said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. I think that's probably putting it quite politely, you know, that they were delighted. I, I imagine they were loving it. Just like when, when somebody is brought down a peg or two, when that crash happens in the restaurant, maybe not. But they were loving it. They were absolutely loving life. He'd gotten, he got what he deserved. And suddenly Jesus even though he was at the front now, he has the full attention of everyone. They're delighted with him. He's performed this great miracle. He's humiliated the synagogue ruler and they're hanging on his every word. And he asks two questions. Verse 18, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? I wonder what they were expecting him to say. I mean, maybe a a wildfire spreading through a forest or a king with thousands of troops invading a city, something really impressive like that. No, verse 19, it is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Mustard seeds. That's a bit disappointing, Jesus. You know, people then on average knew a bit more about agriculture and plants and things than the average person here probably does today, or at least I'm I'm speaking for myself when I say that. I know absolutely nothing. But as much as the crowd would have been surprised that Jesus said the kingdom of God was like something so small, they would have understood exactly what he was saying because mustard seeds were known for being really, really tiny. And yet the mustard plant could grow to something quite big um, in the Middle East. I'm sure you'll be really fascinated by this. There are two types of mustard plant in the Middle East. One grows to about 10 to 12 feet tall, and the other variety grows to around 25 feet tall, which is seven and a half meters in new money. It's pretty big. It's pretty tall. So Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is like something really small and weak and insignificant looking, but grows to be something very substantial and magnificent. The same is true of the yeast. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. The yeast is this really small component. I know even less about baking than I do about gardening, but slowly and surely, with a lot of hard work, it's grafted and worked right through the dough until the whole batch is leavened. And the kingdom of God is something like that. It's something 
that although it may look small and weak at times and really insignificant, it'll grow to be something substantial and magnificent. And this isn't a difficult sermon this morning. More than anything else, I want you to be encouraged today that our God is a God who can do amazing things with what we have, even when what we have isn't very much. Let me say that again. Our God is a God who can do amazing things with what we have, even when what we have isn't very much. It's always been the case with God and his people from the very start. Think about Abraham. We've been uh, looking at him in our evening services through the summer. God says to him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Through you, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. Now that promise, if you'll forgive the pun, did not look particularly promising to Abraham. It couldn't have. He was an old man. Sarah, his wife, was an old woman well beyond having children. Abraham didn't fancy it, so he took another wife, Sarah's slave girl, Hagar, and had a son with her. But the Lord said, no, no, you're going to have a son with Sarah. And I'm, it's him I'm talking about. He's going to be the great nation, more numerous than the sand. And when Abraham was 99 and Sarah was 89, it didn't look too likely. A pathetic little mustard seed, perhaps. How could a great nation come from that? How would all the other nations of the earth be blessed through that? And yet a year later, Isaac was born, and he would be the father of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. And the rest is history. A nation who would know the Lord and from whom all the nations would be blessed. And that's how we know him today. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says that this mustard seed will grow into a big tree where birds will perch these birds are other people groups, other nations. It's a picture from the Old Testament in, in numerous places, not least um, the book of Ezekiel, chapter 17, where the Lord says he'll take just a small part, um, a small branch from the tree of Israel, and he'll plant it, and it'll grow into a great big tree where other nations will perch. It didn't look too good for the kingdom of God when the prophet Samuel was told, right, go off and pick one of Jesse's sons and anoint him and I'm going to make him a king and it's going to be his family. This is going to be the family line that, that is going to bless the nations. He picks between the, all these strong guys and the Lord says, no, it, it's not any of them. But there's pathet this pathetic looking shepherd boy over there. And the Lord says, well, he's the one. A little mustard seed. It didn't, didn't look like he would be the one, but that's what happened. And many years later, Jesus is born. It doesn't look too good for the kingdom of God when Joseph goes to his relatives in Bethlehem with his fiance who's about to pop. And, and there's so much shame around this pregnancy outside of wedlock that the family won't let them in and, and puts them with the animals instead. Yes, that is what happened. Don't, don't let the children's nativity plays fool you. What sort of person wouldn't let a, a pregnant lady into their inn? No, it was that there was no guest space available for them. The, the, the family wouldn't let them in. It was a scandalous pregnancy. So here you have this baby born in dust and dirt with muck and dear knows what else on the ground. And the only place they can set him down is in the manger, in the feeding trough, little mustard seed. It's a pretty pathetic entrance for God's son. I think we sang power and majesty concealing by his humble birth earlier. That's a nice way of putting it. One who's going to establish the kingdom of God. Bethlehem, a hole in the hedge, shunned by his own family, born in a dirty, smelly stable. Even moving on from there, it doesn't seem to get much better. He's in Nazareth. Remember when he calls Philip and Nathaniel to be his disciples? Nathaniel says, Nazareth? 
Can anything good come out of there? It's like saying the Messiah came from a Hockle or Ballanderry or, I don't know, Straban. Really? Do you think so? Showing some of my prejudices there, sorry. Should add Ballyneur into that list just to, for balance. It didn't look much more promising during Jesus' lifetime either. You know, he says to the disciples, look, I'm going to make you guys fishers of men. You're Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. Go, make disciples of all nations. Establish my church. Oh, and by the way, I'm going back up to heaven. Well, who are these guys? Well, we're fishermen. We're civil servants. We're women. And and Jesus has treated us a lot better than the society that we live in often did. But ultimately, they would have little influence on society. Okay, that's who you are. Well, what skills do you have? Well, we're pretty good at fishing. We're pretty good at not understanding Jesus and letting him down. Great, you've got the job. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but the little mustard seed will grow. What did it look like for the kingdom of God as Jesus hung on the cross and the disciples had fled and were locked in their houses because they were too scared that they would be killed too? It didn't look too promising then, but as Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a seed. But if it does fall to the ground and die, it produces much fruit. That's what happened. These guys went out and spread the news. It happened all through the early church. The apostles were killed, all of them, but the church grew and grew. After the apostles, the early church was oppressed horrendously by the Roman Empire. Nero used to burn Christians just to light up his garden. But a saying came about at that time that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because the more blood that was shed, the more the church kept growing and growing until in the fourth century, the emperor Constantine was converted. He became a Christian and the Roman Empire became essentially Christian. It's when the church is at its lowest, when it looks like it's at its worst, that it can be at its most powerful. We heard last week of 300 million Christians in China, all underground, all meeting in secret, but the church is spreading like wildfire. Since the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, it has the uh, dubious honor of becoming the number one country for the persecution of Christians in the world, according to release. It's knocked North Korea off that mantle, but the church is growing there. The same is true still in North Korea, where Christians are sometimes taken away and never heard of again, but God is building his church. I'm sure you get the picture. And I think you know something of it here. What was this church like six years ago? A place where once, maybe a hundred years ago, five or six hundred people were crammed in here on a Sunday morning. But to quote my daughter's favorite, Peppa Pig, it shrank and it shrinked and it shrunk to the brink of closure. Not many young people, not growing, not flourishing, discouraged. To you and me, it might have looked like closure was the right option. As sad as that would have been. But the Lord saw this place and said, yeah, I'm going to do something there. I wonder what difference it would make to the Presbyterian Church in Ireland instead of looking at at finances and numbers and attendance if it looked at small feeling churches the way Jesus does. You're small, you're broke, your building's fallen down. Looks like you should close. Okay, you look like a mustard seed. Yeah. But forget about PCI for a moment. What about you and me? Perhaps you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. You're not following Jesus. And part of the reason that you haven't taken that step is because deep down, you wonder if you're good enough. 
because Christians are meant to be up here somewhere, in, in our minds anyway. A good deal of them are hypocrites, mind you, but, but they're meant to be up there. Good people. And I just don't think I could do that. Join the club. Jesus does call us to follow him. Yes, he does call us to obey. He calls us to a life of holiness. And he does change us, but it's not easy. I let him down. You will too. But that's why he died for you. We read words uh, from the Apostle Paul, you know, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, planted churches, that great guy maybe up here somewhere. You know what he called himself? The chief of sinners. He said, of of all the sinners, I'm the worst. He called himself a wretch of a man because of his sin. And in the words we read earlier, Paul said that we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay. He's talking about our bodies there, our weak bodies made of clay, weak, susceptible to sin. But God does that so that we're under no illusion that we're good enough. Paul says he does it so that we can't boast in ourselves because it's all about Jesus and what he has done. That's where the treasure is. Even when Paul thinks he does have something to boast about, those great visions, whatever they were, he says that God made him weak. He gave him this thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what that was. But that was so that Paul would learn and would tell us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus didn't come into the world to call people who think they're up there, like the synagogue leader who he brought down a peg or two. He came to call sinners. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I love the way the the New Living Translation puts that verse. Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners and need to repent. If you know this morning that you're a sinner, if you know that you don't make the mark, if you don't think you're good enough, if you think you're too far away, or if you think you've done too much of whatever, then let me tell you this. You're exactly who Jesus is calling. You are mustard seed material. He's done it for millions of people all over the world. He did it for Paul, who literally used to go around and have Christians put to death. He did it for me, weak and sinful as I am. And he can do it for you because he loves you. The old children's hymn puts it, I love to hear the story which angel voices tell of how the Prince of Glory came down on earth to dwell. I am both weak and sinful, but this I surely know. The Lord came down to save me because he loves me so. And if you are a follower of Jesus today, you've you've already made that transition. You've already gone from being a seed to a plant, but Jesus wants you to grow. He wants birds to perch on the branches, if you like. He wants you to bless others, like the, the yeast through the dough. He wants you to influence those around you for him. And it will happen. The Bible says it will happen. The kingdom of God will encompass the whole world. The prophet Habakkuk in the Old Testament says that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. It will happen. Paul says every knee will bow to Jesus and he will use us to do it. But we have to let him. Because we have, we have a terrible tendency, I certainly do. We sin and we feel and we're convicted of our sin. We realize how weak we are and that's a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit at work in us. But at that point, instead of going to the Savior, what do we do? We try to patch it up. 
We try and get to a stronger place before we come back to Jesus. We tell ourselves, well, if I, if I could just get back to praying or reading the Bible or if I could just shake that sin off or whatever it is, if I was just in a better place with this or that or the other. But when we believe that, we're believing a lie from hell. When we feel, when we realize how weak we are, there's only one place we should go, and that's to the Savior's arms. Immediately, weak, sinful, just as we are. The woman didn't wait until she was better to go and praise God in the synagogue. No, she came to Christ. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Come as we are. He will use us to bless others, to do the work of his kingdom, but we have to let him. We have to let go of our pride. We have to accept and even embrace that we are weak and that it's in our weakness that we're strong because Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. Quite a few uh, years ago now, Graham Kendrick wrote a song based on those words in 2 Corinthians. I don't know if you know it, but this is the final verse of that song. Though we are weak, his grace is everything we need. We're made of clay, but this treasure is within. He turns our weaknesses into his opportunities so that the glory goes to him. Yeah, we're, we're made of clay, but our weakness is where his strength is seen. Yes, we're weak, but that way boasting is excluded. That way he gets the glory. That way we actually experience more of his grace and healing. Perhaps in a, a better known song, yet not I, but through Christ in me, which we often sing. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. The kingdom of God is like something that is small and weak and looks really insignificant, but grows to be something substantial and magnificent because our God is a God who can do amazing things with what we have, even when what we have isn't very much. Why is it? Why is it that we like seeing people being taken down a peg or two? Is it because we're just cruel creatures? Maybe partly, but actually I don't think so. I think it's because underneath all of us, we know that we're weak. We know that we're weak and we know really that that person is too. But the good news this morning is that Jesus specializes in our weakness. He calls us to, to lay down our lives and our attempts and our, our pride, our, our attempts to be better before we come to know him, and he calls us to embrace our weakness, not to stay there, not to wallow, not to wallow in sin, but instead to receive his strength, his kingdom power, his new life, won for us when he defeated our sin through his death on the cross and defeated our death by rising again. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Let's pray together. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Lord, this morning we acknowledge before you that in these bodies we are jars of clay. We're weak. And we struggle and we know that in ourselves we can't rise to that challenge of following you and obeying you. But we thank you for what you've done for us. In living the perfect life that we couldn't. Taking away our sin if we trust in you. 
Thank you for that grace, that power that meets us right at our point of need and lifts us right up into your kingdom, to your glory, safe into the arms of Jesus. So take us there, Lord, and keep us there so that we would grow in love for you and may be used by you in ways that we maybe haven't even imagined yet. But as you do that, may boasting be excluded. May all the glory go to you, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.